Hey, everybody. We are excited to speak with our next guest here at the Emerge Virtual Cannabis Conference. Um, this is one of my favorite people to see talk when it comes to cannabis, when it comes to business, and when it comes to investments. This person really knows her stuff. So I'm excited to bring to you Cody Sanchez. Cody, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Yeah. So, Cody, uh, let me just ask you. We'll just jump right into it here. Um mm -hmm. It's spring has sprung. Uh, we've got a new year. We've got a new administration. Um, what is kind of the state of the state as far as the cannabis business? Just just kind of overall, is it all roses and and sunshine and rainbows? Well, I think that we probably have a little bit of over optimism into how fast everything is going to move. I like to look at the cannabis industry with a worst case scenario lens, since often that's what happens in this wild space. And so what I'd say is there's a ton of tailwinds behind us. We may legalize faster than we anticipated. Safe banking looks like it might actually go through this time around, which would have massive implications for the industry. And overall, I think the industry is moving towards, for the first time ever, profitability. I mean, we have seven mm -hmm. to 10 companies right now that are actually profitable for the first time ever um, as publicly listed MSOs. So the industry is maturing. And if you think about how quickly this industry has, has matured post sort of this quasi state by state legalization in comparison to an industry like tech, it's pretty astounding. I mean, none of the tech companies were even a positive within, you know, seven years of actual listing to um, profitability. It's incredibly right. fast, actually. And so I think there's a lot of good things happening in the industry. Some of the things that I'm cautious on are um, people to preempt legalization and have too high of expectation for valuations. Um, so I like our companies to be profitable today and to focus on what the world is today. And then hopefully the world continues to, to get better, but I don't want to invest with future valuations in mind completely. And it seems like that right now, a lot of people are, are wanting to invest or maybe wanting to get in the game. It seems like, uh, you know, ever since the whole Robin Hood thing, uh, you know, like the power back to the people, you know, it seems like there's a lot of people that are, are excited about, uh, you know, there's, there's NFTs, there's crypto, there's cannabis stocks, you know, there's all these really cool, shiny things coming. Um, and that's good, but that also comes with some risks, doesn't it? Certainly. I mean, I, my tenant is largely cash flow is king. So if mm -hmm. you're going to take speculative trades, which cannabis, crypto, NFTs, or whatever the quick case may be are, um, you need to have some short term cash flow in order to enable you to wait out the long term volatility and maybe binary on the upside um, nature of these investments. So um, yes, there's a lot of hype and frothiness. But you know, if you if you think about how some of the wealthiest people made money uh, in the US, it's from selling books on Amazon, you know, it's from investing in railroads with Warren Buffett, you know. So I think remembering that at the end of the day, what we're doing in cannabis is we are selling a relative commodity, weed, it's called mm -hmm. that for a reason, it's relatively easy to grow. And there's demand for that commodity. And there are ways to create a moat around the commodity so your margins can become better. But at the end of the day, you know, to not really get into too much speculation about the asset class, I think is is the key. The interesting part is 
Now, I remember telling some of my hedge fund friends when I saw the GameStop trades, because it wasn't just that one hedge fund. Almost every hedge fund on the street had shorts uh, on GameStop. Um, I remember saying, you know who they're going to go after next is, is cannabis. And they're going to really pump up cannabis stocks because it is this contrarian non-consensus trade, right? A little bit of anti-establishment yeah. against the government. And so that doesn't surprise me at all. But look closely, what happened to GameStop after the hype calmed down? It went back to rationality. And so yeah. um, make sure that the cannabis companies you're investing in should be where they're valued at. Yeah, it's like sometimes we get away from fundamentals, right? Like just sometimes it's it's the the devil's in the details and is the company fundamentally sound has got to when these things come back down to normal, that's got to be like like front and center, you know, because there's a lot of speculation and a lot of hype. But at the end of the day, um, if it doesn't make money, then what's, you know, people are going to lose patience quickly. I think that's right. That that said, I mean, I don't think there's another asset class that has 24%, you know, compound annual growth rate or how fast the industry is growing. Yeah. Um, that also is recession resistant and, you know, was one of the few areas of the economy during the coronavirus shutdown that had, uh, you know, positive economic and profit momentum across almost every parameter. Um, if you looked at any other segment of the economy, Perhaps e-commerce uh, was mm -hmm. one of the other strongest uh, segments, but cannabis does seem to have this ability to protect on the downside to some degree, and also to participate quite aggressively in the upside as a growth sector. There's been a lot of talk recently about the big industries moving into cannabis. You know, we knew that big beverage was there. Um, now it's looking like, you know, maybe big tobacco, you know, big pharma, you know, they're all kind of coming in. So it seems like a lot of people laid the groundwork. They did the, you know, the heavy lifting and, you know, kind of started building this thing out, jumping through all the hoops, the regulation and everything as this inevitably will happen because companies are going to follow the money. Um, is that good overall? Do you think? you know, to have these big players come in with their checkered past, or um, would it be better if there was some way to, you know, stay pure, like we want to believe the industry is? I think that's a bit of a narrative. Humans yeah. are humans, whether they work for large corporations or they work for small bohemian shops, you know, we can't be um, so naive to think that because somebody is small, they have good intentions. I, I don't yeah. actually think that makes much sense at all. I think what is probably true is that the bigger you get, the more bureaucratic you get, the less innovation you can have, the less risk you take. And so at some point, the corporations are more protectionist than they are expansionist. Mm -hmm. That to me makes sense. Um, and, you know, do I love the idea of the tobacco industry coming in and sort of buying out all cannabis companies? Not particularly. Um, but do I think that that's likely to happen? No. Um, however, what will happen is we will absolutely see these big incumbents in strategics and other industries come and invest in cannabis, just like they did in Canada. Uh, they'll do the same thing in the US. That said, those acquisitions, by and large, haven't performed incredibly well for them. Mm. So, you know, these there have been some very interesting acquisitions at super high valuation. So I do wonder what the next stage will look like. I think it will probably be that the companies buy out large profitable businesses that are doing 50, 100, 150, $200 million in revenue, as opposed to back in the day, they invested in companies that had a large supposed market share or footprint, but not a lot of profitability. So I think that'll be what happens. And then it's just personal preference. You know, do you mm -hmm. like, you know, big 
sort of companies coming in and investing or do you like it smaller? I mean, I prefer a local coffee shop to a Starbucks, um, mm. but that doesn't mean anything uh, yeah. to Starbucks and whether it'll buy a, a company or not. Well, and sometimes what happens is a big company that maybe doesn't have the best reputation in the public, they buy mm -hmm. something, they don't want to change it because they know that it's working. They just want to add it to their portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you can see that with uh, quite a few acquisitions that have been done by like General Mills and the consumer packaged goods space, mm -hmm. um, especially with, um, I'm forgetting the name of the company, it's like Crave or Rave. Um, anyway, they've... Um, they've brought in a few smaller CPG companies for explicitly that reason. However, I do think at some point it is hard to be an innovative risk-taking company within a very large ecosystem um, just because of the bureaucratic nature of it. Yeah, yeah. And and what about impact investing? Um, is it is that something that is, you know, it seems like it'd be kind of good in both ways, right? You're investing and also you feel good about what you're investing in because it's sustainable. Um, what, what's kind of your take on that right now? And is that a is that a good place to be, you think? Yeah, well, I think the cannabis industry by and large is an impact investment. I mean, the cannabis industry is is uh each month bringing on about 10,000 new jobs. It's one of the fastest growing job sectors in the US. The cannabis industry also has a ton of environmental components to it like bioremediation with hemp, the ability to do recycling. Um, there's a little bit of a global plastics uh, supply shock right now. Hemp can be used um, in some instances instead of plastic. So, um, you know, I think there's actually a lot of reason why to invest in cannabis as an impact investment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, while the, the jury's out still on whether impact investing in ESG by and large is more profitable than general investing, I typically think if there's a big problem to solve, such as, you know, bioremediation, so problem with toxic toxicity in farmlands or opioids, people becoming too addicted or, um, you know, people wanting to change from alcohol to something a little bit healthier for them without the hangover calories. Those are big problems. And when you solve a big problem, you can usually get a big payout. And so from that perspective, why wouldn't you want to have an impact investment in your portfolio? Because it's really just saying there's a big problem out there. And that problem is one that has a positive impact for humanity. And I'm going to get a investment ROI while I get a good for humanity ROI. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this right now, but I remember when Bush was president, like I bought stock in Halliburton, you know what I mean? Like I, I, it's not like I was like, yay, Halliburton. It just seemed like it made sense. But if you can invest your money in stuff that you believe in, and like you said, things that are solving a problem, um, I don't know. I, I think it makes you just sleep a little bit better. You know, it's just kind oh, of- yeah. It's yeah, you're totally. Like, and there's lots of ways to make money. So you yeah. can figure out the way that you think is, is best. And typically I think it's more sustainable if, um, you know, you're not hiding any aspect of what you're doing. And so, yeah, no doubt about it. I, I mean, ESG is supposedly one of the largest growing asset classes uh, out there right now from an institutional investor standpoint. And I, I tend to think because of the Biden administration's stance and mm. push for, multiple diversity and inclusion initiatives in the environment, ESG will probably be an interesting asset class to perform this year. Um, and, you know, there's some signs already in numerous uh, global pensions that cannabis is being included in ESG indices. Um, wow. So that's a positive for the industry. We've come a long ways.
No you think about it. <laughs> and, and by the way, you know, the last year was pretty challenging. There was a lot of big pivots that happened. We saw events disappear. We saw people work from home, learn from home, um, you know, and now, and now, like I said, we're, we're kind of coming out of our shell right now. I noticed with you, um, you really started putting out a lot of content. And I noticed you with your contrarian thinking, um, I, I thought it was fascinating. Like this is becoming a really big deal where content creators are in control of their content. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because that seems like another kind of a new trend that has, uh, has emerged lately. Yeah, I think there are plenty of people that don't get it. And I think they're sleeping. Uh, I think audience uh, and content is really just a way to tap into audience is sort of the fourth form of leverage. So, you know, historically, the first form of leverage we had was uh, human leverage, right? Employment, slavery, fiefdom. It was you have more power if you have more people doing your bidding, right? It's the most mm -hmm. old school type of leverage. It's also the most inefficient. Then you had capital, right? So that's how most of the wealth was created in the US. The big robber barons and the Rothschilds and um, the Rockefellers, they were created right around the time when the banking system was established in the US. That's the second time type of leverage, capital. Then you have the third type of leverage, which created some of the wealthiest people in the US today. And that was software the ability for you to have automation and a ton of you know little robots as servants let's say doing your biz your bidding online created the you know forbes i'm sorry created the steve jobs and the uh, jeff bezos of the world and so i think the next form of leverage is audience and so you know today if, if you're an investor there's a couple reasons you should do it one you want to get into the best deals right mm -hmm. and these days to get into the best deals it's not just that you show up it's that they believe that you have value i can't tell you how many times i get asked why should we have you on our cap table and it's not just dollars it's Dollars for sure, but also what will you do for us? What doors will you open up for us? Will your name mean something to people on the cap table? Um, and then in tandem with that, <clears throat> you know, there's the ability now for the first time ever to show that um, you have a thought process, some kind of philosophy in the market um, by creating content and attracting people to you. So I attract investors as mm -hmm. opposed to going out and chasing them. And so I think the old school way will be cold calling, you should invest with us, let's get after it, we'll meet at the 19th hole of the country club. And the new way will be, you've already seen what I've invested in, I've talked about my portfolio, I've talked about my philosophy, you've gotten to trust me for months and months and contact touches after contact touches on the internet. And now you decide that you wanna invest alongside me. And I, and I do think that will be part of the future. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like it makes so much sense and that the, uh, you know, I guess maybe the proliferation of social media, it was almost a, a democratization, you know, where you can have a big audience and speak directly to them for the most part. And it's just a matter of what will you do with this superpower, you know, use it for good or for evil. And uh, it just cuts out the need for distribution, cuts out the need for, you know, from, uh, I see a lot of writers, you know, that have been laid off from media and stuff like that. And they're like, screw it, I'm firing my editor. I'm creating my own, you know, Substack, my own newsletter, and I'm going to start reaching the people. And it just seems, uh, it just seems really smart. It seems really common sense. I think you're right. Yeah, there's a little bit of a media revolution going on right now, and I yeah, do think it's media is a mess. Yeah, I yeah. think it's niched down, and I think it's um, 
you know, we're losing our trust in institutions, right? Is what's happened mm-hmm. by and large. A trust in governments on both sides of the equation, a lack of trust in, in corporations, as you just mentioned previous to this, a last lack of trust in individuals that are politicians. And so where is the trust going from? It's moving from institutions to individuals. And so increasingly, you might not trust what you read in the New York Times. You might not trust what you watch on Fox News, but you might trust what um, Matt Walsh says, who has a conservative voice, or you might trust on the opposite end of the spectrum, what comes out of something from the dispatch. And so I think that is, is an interesting phenomenon that will probably just continue. We are uh, getting ready to go and uh, speak at the NOCO Hemp Expo here in Denver. It's the first like live event, you know, since uh, about a year ago. So that's going to be really interesting. And um, I'm going to be talking there about innovation, technology, and hemp with some other people. And so I figured I would cheat uh, and just ask you kind of what are your your thoughts on, you know, hemp, um, which has kind of got some different uh, uh, challenges and such as, you know, the, uh, the, the cannabis side there. What do you think about, um, you know, kind of just the current state right now of hemp as far as a business investing and, you know, what, what the technology looks like? Well, you know, I, I think hemp is, is a commodity, right? And so mm-hmm. to use the classification hemp broadly, to me, it's not hugely useful. Um, what would be more interesting to me is it, it gets down to productization and how can you build your moat? So, you know, if you said to me, I have a business, we're doing something in the hemp space, that really is not intriguing. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. But if you said, hey, we've figured out a patented way in which to use hemp and the, I don't know, some derivative of hemp to do X, Y, Z. We have IP that's patentable on it, and we have an ability to create a moat around our business. Okay, I'm interested. Or we have a hemp process to use um, in construction materials like hempcrete, and we have an exclusive distribution license license with two of the largest, um, you know, companies distribute. Uh, construction companies in the US. You know, there's a construction boom happening right now. There's a huge influx in the increase in price of uh, timber or of wood overall. And so because of that, we're gonna actually partner to create timber-like substitutes with hemp. And we've partnered with, you know, a couple of these different big builders in order to do that. That's interesting. So I think the real thing hemp people need to start thinking is it's no longer a uh, scarce resource, hemp. Hmm. Hemp is now relatively normalized. It's no longer federally illicit. Mm -hmm. And so with that, that means that you now would have to get into business 101, which is what's different about your product, what's different about your distribution, what's different about your team, and what's different as your unfair advantage. That's what I'd want to know from a hemp company. So it kind of goes back to the same thing you were saying at the beginning you know, sort of, sort of those fundamentals and that it's got to have, you know, some real meat on the bones from, from a business standpoint, it can't just be theory and, and ideas and stuff. There's gotta be some, uh, yeah, it's, it's gotta, it's gotta be legit as far as a business. Yeah. I think that's right. You can't just draft on hemp and expect to raise money today or raise sales. You have to provide some sort of differentiation. Yeah, it seems like scale a lot of times is what is the challenging part for hemp, you know, because it's got all this potentiality and it, it can do just about everything, but it's that yeah. whole that whole scale thing that seems to slow it down. Uh, yeah, um, I think you're right. Yeah, and, and I got a question for you too. I saw an article this morning about dispensaries going out of business. How how can a dispensary go out of business? It seems like, you know, probably to the casual observer that uh, the dispensary is kind of like one of those businesses that you just 
turn the lights on and open the door and you're going to make a ton of money. Um, what, what are they, how, how does a dispensary, you know, go out of business or, or have trouble? Um, well, I think there's a couple different things. People completely overestimate the green rush in cannabis. Remember, uh-huh. I mean, it is the most highly taxed and regulated industry, arguably in the U.S., Um, there is an incredible amount of red tape built around the industry. So for every dollar you make, you're keeping probably the lowest percentage of that dollar of any other industry after the states and uh, 280E take effect. And so um, you start with less than you anticipate. And then on top of that, you have ever-changing regulations. So packaging laws change and allowance for, you know, percentage of THC in products changes. Um, So there's, you know, and then changes for how your building happens to be constructed. And, you know, especially with COVID, I mean, think about these poor guys. One instance, it was fine, business as usual. Then it was, you're shut down. And then it was like, no, wait, you're not shut down. You can do curbside pickup. And then I was like, no, you can kind of do curbside pickup, but it's got to be in these different Uh. locations, you know, and then after curbside pickup, it's, well, maybe you could do a delivery, but if you do delivery, it has to be contactless. So they're in this ever-changing environment that's actually very difficult and complex. You cannot be smoking weed all day and run a, uh, a dispensary, that's for sure. And then, and then I think the other part of the equation is it's getting more competitive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there used to be a lot less players in the space, but increasingly they're allowing more licenses as the states realize that it, tax revenue is real. Yeah. And so when there's more competition, you have to be better. I think it's great for good uh, operators. It's not so good mm-hmm. if you're lazy and have really thin margins. Yeah, I'm in Denver and you can't swing a dead cat without, you know, a dispensary. And you wonder, like, is there enough to support all of them or, you know, I guess I guess the market will work it out. Right. Yeah, it usually does. Well, uh, Cody, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I always feel like I get like 10 times smarter when I hear you talk. It's like Shark Tank on steroids. Um, I absolutely uh, have had a blast talking with you. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Uh, any shout outs? Maybe you want to have them, you know, uh, sign up for contrarian thinking or something like that? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. We actually just have a new website. You guys can check it out. It's called contrarianthinking.co. So you can go sign up there. It's a free weekly newsletter on different ways to think critically and cash flow unconventionally. We talk about cannabis there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the only other thing is like, there's lots of interesting stuff going on in our portfolio companies. So if you go to Entourage Effect Capital, you'll see all the companies we've invested in. You'll see what kind of companies that we've invested in. And um, and there's some, there are just, I'm really impressed all of you cannabis entrepreneurs. You're stepping up your game big time. And I continue to wish we had more and more money to allocate because I, I think the industry is really, the future is really bright for this industry. Who came up with that name, Entourage Effect Capital? It's brilliant. Yeah, it's a group effort. I mean, it's a lot of words. There's a lot of vowels yeah. in there. So I, <laughs> I wish we made it a little bit smaller, but the idea is that the whole is, is greater than the sum of the parts. And I, I think we try to live, live that ethos, both at Entourage Effect Capital and Contrary and Thank You. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us from Cannabis and Tech today and the Emerge Virtual Conference. Uh, It's been a pleasure and we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Simple to use, easy to clean, incredibly precise. Introducing the first packaging and weighing system designed specifically for the cannabis industry. One that gives you more control, consistency, and a better product. The Green Vault System Precision Batcher is designed to offer you the flexibility to switch your packaging options seamlessly. This innovative packaging technology uses gentle puffs of air, also known as air cush technology, to move product rather than vibration. 
The process aids in the preservation of trichomes on your flower, leading to a higher end potency, better market price, and a customer experience that lives up to your brand's high standards. Technology unlike any other, built for an industry unlike any other. Instead of repurposing technology from other industries, Green Vault Systems engineered their integrated packaging and weighing system for the unique characteristics and demands of cannabis. It's built to help grow your business from the ground up.